And Allison, by now, just about every Chicagoan can recite the terrible numbers. 33 young men and boys murdered by the monster But what many forget is that some of the victims were never identified. Tonight, one more name finally came to light. More than 40 years later, the nightmare case of continues to reveal its secrets. We're here today to announce that uh, we have identified yet another one of the victims of massacres. Until today, he had been known only as victim number five. But investigators say they now know that victim was actually Francis Wayne Alexander, a North Carolina native who moved to Chicago in 1975 and fell victim to sometime in the next two years. I always felt from the very beginning that it was our job, that law enforcement doesn't have a time where all of a sudden we stop caring. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation. And 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. It is still unknown how Alexander might have fallen into ghastly world that is information investigators likely will never know how was he murdered how did he run into how is he connected to the case lieutenant jason moran has worked to identify the unnamed victims for 10 years there are five remaining and he says the impetus to complete that job is just as strong as when it began someone that went missing 40 years ago or was murdered 
40 years ago is, is no less important than someone that goes missing today. Investigators are still looking to give back the names of five victims, number 10, 13, 21, 26, and 28. Today, Francis Wayne Alexander's family released a statement which read in part, it is hard even 45 years later to know the fate of our beloved Wayne. He was killed at the hands of a vile and evil man. Hi everyone and welcome to Real Crime Profile. I'm Laura Richards, criminal behavioural analyst, former New Scotland Yard and host of the podcast Crime Analyst. And with me today is... Hi, I'm Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer for CBS's Criminal Minds. And I am Lisa Zambetti, I'm the casting director for Criminal Minds and many other things. And I have a real interest in real crime and the minds that solve those crimes. We are back talking about this horrific case as depicted. We're kind of following along Devil in Disguise, which is a documentary on Peacock. But uh, we wanted to jump in. Uh, where do you guys want to start? Go ahead and jump in. Well, I think where we left off, we were talking about some of the uh, behaviors of the offender. But what we knew is that he basically staffed his company with boys, teenage boys and young men. And there was a reason for that, because this gave him access, authority and control and was a perfect grooming tool for him. And what he was doing was trying to get and use these guys for his sexual pleasure, but also the ones that weren't compliant victims. He tricked them into a situation where they were alone with him and then he got control over them and then he raped and tortured and murdered them. And that is something that people should look at as a totality. This isn't, didn't just happen. This was a plan, a longstanding plan that he had to put into effect years before he started raping and killing these boys and men. But anyway, he tries at times to really minimize what he did. But one of the things that he did, and you could just see how easily a teenage boy might fall into this, is that he showed them this handcuff trick where he had fake handcuffs and he pretended he was handcuffed, but then he just tripped the switch and opened them up. And then he said, here, you should try it. I'll teach you. But then he put real handcuffs on the kid and the kid couldn't get out. And that kid now becomes helpless. And that's when he takes advantage of them, sexually assaults, rapes them, tortures them and kills them. This is just a hideous excuse for a human being. And the people that he preyed on, obviously, were people that trusted him and people that in the community, everybody thought that he was you know, this nice guy. And that's the problem with nice guy acquaintance and pillar of the community offenders is that people look right past them because they think offenders always look and act like monsters. It's just not true. It's not true at all. And like I've said a number of times, Lisa, we did try when casting criminal minds to show these offenders were not all these hideous looking, outrageously strange people, but people who actually pulled the wool over their friends and family and neighbors' eyes. They hid in plain sight. They were business owners and, and dads and coaches and, and all those things. Right. And I'm sure you saw that in your cases too. 
Well, I think it's one of the biggest barriers to people really understanding how dangerous offenders can be. You know, the guy who pulls up to the young kid and he's got a baby seat in the back that people think, well, family man, I've seen that so many times and it's by design. And the detectives in this case did keep saying he was such a nice guy. He just seemed so normal. But what is normal when these offenders hide in plain sight? They can get married. They make conscious choices and decisions. They learn what works. I call it a trade craft. And they Mm -hmm. perfect it as they go along. And let's not forget, he really enjoyed doing this. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned, Jim, about the handcuff trick and the neck trick, these things that he calls tricks. But I think he really enjoyed those moments of fear and terror that those young boys and men must have felt of you know him joking, oh, well, you need the key. And these jokes that are just so callous, you know, dead don't bother you. The dead don't bother you. It's the living you have to worry about. These kind of throwaway comments that just minimizes distracts. You know, this was a sadistic individual who did it over and over and over again. And yet he minimized everything, as you said, and rationalized everything. And he was a politician, an inverted commas, successful businessman, all these things that people think he's a family man, he's married twice, he's got children, and he used those, used it all as leverage. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with his two closest employees, that would have been We'll just call them Rossi and Cram. The fact is they were employees of his. And he he says, at least, that he used them for sex. And it, he's very crass about it and basically saying, I could get them to go down on me anytime I wanted. Well, you were paying them. And who knows what else you were doing? Were doing you drugs with them? them? Doing, yeah. yeah, doing drugs. They were partying all the time. He tries to put the blame on them, saying, Oh, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't murder any of these people. But he says there is no way I could have done any of the dragging into the crawl space of the bodies. He claims in this docuseries that, yeah, okay, so he killed one kid, but, you know, one guy. But that was in self-defense, self-defense. You say that this guy attacked you with a knife. Why did he attack you with a knife? Were you trying to sexually assault him? Did you get him drunk or drugged up and then tried to assault him? And then he was trying to protect himself. And then you said, I took the knife away. I mean, I turned the knife around and that's how he died. It's such the statement itself. That's how he died. No, that's a passive way of saying that's how I killed him. But again, his answer to this supposed self-defense is I'm going to bury this guy under my house. Clearly, that's guilty actions, guilty actions of somebody who killed somebody else, not of somebody who saved his own life in self-defense. And then he says all the other murders, all the other bodies just news to him. He had no idea they were under his house. Well, sometimes he says, oh, I just woke up and there was this dead body in the living room and I didn't ask any right. questions. It must yeah, have been I one didn't of want the to other get involved. Guys. That's, right. That's kind of the cool thing about how Robert Russell, his interview with JG uh, in this documentary is he just lets him contradict himself again and again. I mean, I really appreciated his take on it. He wasn't sensational. He didn't have any reaction at all to what. No, that's how you get them to keep talking. Yeah. He just made no sense. He was constantly contradicted by many, many facts. Right. That's why I said JG 
is not one of the brilliant serial killers. He's not that intelligent. He's pretty damn dumb. He isn't that forensically sophisticated or criminally sophisticated. He actually left all the evidence right under his feet. It's right in his house. And he conscripted other people to dig trenches down there, Rossi and Cram, saying that it was for drainage purposes and plumbing purposes. But all that time and and spread lies, seven or eight hundred pounds of lime down there to kill the smell. All these things are not criminally sophisticated things. He actually left a trail that was eventually going to point to him. And he knew about it because when he walked out from his wife, he said, you're going to read about me one day on the front page of the newspapers. He knew that one day he was going to get caught. He knew that one day the gig was going to be up and he was going to have to pay for this. But he just lived it to the very end, lived it by and by lived it. I mean, he fantasized about targeting boys and men, groomed them. He got them into the right situation where he could take advantage of them, got control over them. He sexually assaulted them and raped them and tortured them and murdered them and then mutilated their bodies and or just buried them in a shallow grave under his house, in his garage, under his driveway, or tossed them into a river. I mean, when you think of the carnage of 27 bodies under the crawl space, two more, one in his garage and one in his driveway, and then three or four more in the river or in the woods. It's just unbelievable that that could go on for that long. And the victim's families are just getting told, well, your kid or your son just must have run away. Nobody, nobody in law enforcement was putting together that there was a serial killer killing these people. Nobody. And that's a damn shame. That's what makes it so worrying. Because as, as you say, Jim, it's not sophisticated in any way. The smell, the trenches, no one's asking questions. Why not? And I have worked other cases where that's happened. I mean, one of the cases I worked was a serial killer. And the neighbors said, oh, yeah, he was always digging holes in the garden. He was always digging. And I'd say, all right, Pete, what are you doing? Are you digging through to Australia? It's like when people dig holes like that, people should ask questions, particularly if there's rancid odor coming right. from there, emanating from there. So I don't know why the police didn't ask the right questions when boy after boy, man after man go missing. That's a question. And I did hear one of the police officers say it's actually or I did read about a police officer saying, well, if the, these were girls going missing, it would have been different and it would have been taken seriously. And I take issue with that because that doesn't happen either. It's right. The fact that we have this kind of concept of the less dead, people who matter, people who don't, the victims that matter, the victims that don't, that's what we have to really think about. And the fact that JG, I mean, he covered it up each time. It tells us it's an intentional act. He covered it up. He lied. He manipulated. These are all intentional acts. But at the point where he does confess, he suddenly introduces the concept of insanity and that they're potentially he has another personality. He introduces this uh, concept of Tony, another person being there with him. And the police officers were surprised by it because they said it just came left field out of nowhere. But of course, he had law books too. And he clearly he wasn't bright, like you said, but he was looking into how best to, if challenged, come up with a defence 
And right. as most killers know, at some point, their luck will run out, right? But unfortunately, his went on for a decade, but he'd already crafted the insanity defense, just like PS did on crime analyst. And some people did start to buy into that. And I right. think the challenge, I would have loved to have listened to Bob Ressler's interview beginning to end. I think it was three and a half hours long. And I don't know whether you ever heard the full interview, Jim, but I would have loved to have seen and heard and watched. I think when we're looking at the docu-series, his narrative, along with Craig Bowley, that's the new material, isn't it, is framed centrally to the docu-series. And we don't really hear him being challenged or any pushback. And I just wonder whether there was really any challenge at all across his whole life course of offending. Did anyone ever really put up resistance or challenge him? Even when he was in prison, it seemed that he was sort of running the prison, wasn't he? Both times. Both times he was in prison. Yeah. Well, he he bribed guards and he... He got sweetheart deals because he was a manipulative psychopath. I mean, he was able to do that. But getting back to the police investigation, though, when this victim, this victim who survived, Jeff, he was drugged and chained and raped and beaten. The police, he went to the police and they didn't know how to deal with a rape of a, of a gay man. And, and they considered, he thought, they considered all sex between gays is consensual. And it's the same thing that happened with Dahmer. I mean, when a 15-year-old boy who couldn't speak English, Vietnamese boy, escaped from Dahmer, from being raped, drugged and raped by Dahmer, the police found him running naked in the street, bleeding from his anus. And when Dahmer came up and said, oh, that's just my boyfriend. He's drunk. Let me take him home. They gave him back to Dahmer. And Dahmer continued to rape him and kill him and eat parts of him. This is treated exactly the same way. Luckily, this guy, Jeff, survived. But can you imagine thinking that it's okay to say, oh, you're gay. So, you know, getting raped is not a big deal. So we're not going to follow the leads that you gave us because he identified Gacy. He identified JG. And yet they never actually did anything to lock him up. But I have a question about that because later at the trial, Jeff Rignall did want to testify and there was some back and forth with the prosecution, but he ended up testifying for the defense. And yet he told the horrible story of what JG had done to him. Laura, why would the defense want that witness who is obviously a victim who can identify JG and attest to what he was up to, what, how he controlled him? I mean, I don't know the whole context of that, Lisa, so it's very difficult to opine without knowing what went on and why, other than to say that perhaps because he survived and many of the others didn't, that there was some question about who and what JG was really about and whether he was indeed mentally unwell and so on. But I didn't know that he had been asked to give an account for the defence. I know that that's the first time in the docuseries we hear from the partner. And I think the partner's testimony, when we hear it on camera, is so plausible and authentic. And it's a shame that the prosecution didn't call both of them, actually, to attest to what happened, because that would have been very compelling evidence, along with the medical evidence. I think having seen the pictures of him, there's no doubt that he was abused and that he was tortured. 
consent right. is always the question, though, isn't it? You know, was well, it consensual? Can... With all victims, was it consensual? But his injuries looked horrific. And he said right. it wasn't. His partner said it wasn't. I would have thought that the prosecution would have put them both in to testify. But, but go Laura, ahead, Jim. I know you want to say something as a yeah, former prosecutor. This state's attorney says, I can't bump up the charges. After all, it's just another butt fuck. That's apparently what he said. I mean, as reported by Jeff's partner. But good Lord, fuck you. That's such an arrogant, asinine, ignorant thing to say. And that's why he didn't bump up the charges against JG. But I think the reason why the defense put him on was because Jeff said that as he was sort of in and out of consciousness, he heard other noises in the house and saw a light go on in another room and said there's other people in the house when this is going on. That, but, so that fed the defense's claim that JG didn't act alone. And that's what they were trying to push it off on. Other people did this. It wasn't him. It was other people. So I think that's they uh, out of desperation. They used that. They probably thought he was so bitter at the prosecution for rejecting him as a victim and at the police for not investigating his case that maybe he would say something helpful to JG. I think they took a gamble and I think they lost big time in that gamble. But it is rape. It is drugging. It is an abduction. It is first degree sexual assault and rape. And he should have been charged. JG should have been charged with those things. And shame on you, state's attorney, for looking at it that way. Just another butt fuck. Give me a fucking break. It's just it's outrageous. That person should not be in the law enforcement justice profession. It's just outrageous. But but the other, other way, than- JG covered him. JG covered himself, though, didn't he? Because he did say that men did try and extort him for money. And I don't know whether that was something that ran as part of the defense that he was having sex with them and they were trying to out him and then they were trying to blackmail him and extort money from him. And because JG had that plausibility, that credibility, and I'm not saying it's right, by the way, because it should never have happened, that I wonder how many of the individuals who said things like, it's just another buttfuck, for example, I wonder how many of them actually knew JG in maybe a professional capacity. Because right. it's I mean, it is a horrific thing to say, but we hear women being told that they were asking for it all the time just by I wearing know. a short skirt. You know, know, women each time they walk out at night, right. well, she shouldn't have been outside. She shouldn't have been doing this, that judgment. But JG did have that air of plausibility, didn't he? And we know gay men as well were in the underclass in the 1970s. And I do wonder whether JG played into that in, yes. in this defense when... Boys, men either disappeared because we talked about there were quite a few young boys who disappeared and police did interview him. And there had to be something that he was saying each time consistently. And I think that's what the docuseries does well, is it shows us with our own eyes and our own ears just how manipulative JG was. And we see that consistently. I mean, we can pick up what's congruent, what's not congruent. But bearing in mind these interviews were were very lengthy, it just talks to his levels of manipulation because he is understated right. in how he does it. There's a kernel of truth in most things that he says, but then it's riddled with lies because we know he's a pathological liar. 
And you would have to have someone like us who's literally tracking everything that's being said across time. And we know that that wasn't happening. But when you look at his traits of psychopathy, which in those interviews, it's very clear he has high levels of narcissism, no empathy, master manipulator, pushes boundaries. He he shows no remorse. He's got a callous disregard. He takes no responsibility. He victim blames. Every victim brought it upon themselves. So Jeff Rignall, no doubt, was somebody who in his eyes brought it upon himself. But Jeff's account was he put chloroform over his mouth. That's quite a rare thing as well, isn't it, Jim? We've talked about that before. You can see the burn marks around his face, which is consistent with what he's saying. And therefore, he's using everything that he possibly can because he's had long enough to perfect Sure, his because account, his all he has to do is talk time. his way out of it every single time. It's outrageous. And he didn't have to work too hard to get out of it because the prosecutor said this case, JG had all sorts of victims, a good percentage, absolutely straight suburban kids, others homosexuals or even homosexual prostitutes. They're already saying These are less worthy victims. It wasn't just the homosexuals and the homosexual prostitutes. Well, you know, who cares about them? But there were actually some legitimate suburban straight kids. It's just outrageous that that somebody feels justified saying this today's day and age to a camera knowing that's being documented. Can you imagine what they were like in the 70s? Obviously. This is not how prosecutors are supposed to look at victims, no matter who the victim is. If they're the victim of a crime, they should be treated exactly equally. And that doesn't happen in our justice system. Let's just say it for what it is. The richer you are, the whiter you are, the more privileged you are, the more connected you are, the better chance you get the best result in the justice system. And that that goes for victims of crime and for defendants. And that's just. It's outrageous. Neither of those should be the case. But unfortunately, that's the reality. And this case is just a glaring example of it. He was connected to cases. JG was connected to these missing boys and men cases six times. So like you said, Laura, each time JG had to come up with an excuse. And he probably just matter of factly said, you know, knowing him. Yeah, well, you know, the guy was a drifter. He was into drugs. You know, I suspect he ran away. All right. You know, I wouldn't trust that guy anyway. I barely saw him. I didn't really know him. And they just take it at face value. He is the nexus on six cases and they just let him walk. It's just it's pitiful. It's like in the Louisiana case where nine young men and boys died, were obviously murdered before they actually said, hmm, you know what? Maybe there's a serial killer. In JG's case, they didn't have the bodies, but they had 32 missing young men and boys. What the hell did they think was happening? If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There's a new docu-series coming out, apparently called The Clown and the Candyman, which is, it documents Dean Cole's uh, reign of terror as well, of him torturing, raping and murdering at least 28 boys in Texas. And he was luring them into his house using candy, apparently, from his family who had a confectionery store. And so the docu-series sort of puts the two together of... They're very similar. They had a high body count. Were they in some kind of paedophile network? Were they working together? And I mean, the the first point is that obviously you've got high body counts. You've got young boys who go missing in two different areas and no questions being asked in the 70s. But I think about the UK and the PS case where there was possibly 40, 50 women who he killed and harmed. And they were mostly posited in the media as prostitutes and women of loose morals. That's how they were described. And almost as if they were asking for it. So culturally, going back in the day, we have a problem on on both sides of the pond, all across the world about victims. And I had to ask myself, you know, what really were the police doing? Because in the UK, for example, it was in a relatively small area. Women don't get brutally attacked, hit over the back of the head and have their stomachs stabbed multiple times. That's not a rare, sorry, that's not a common type of crime. And yet that wasn't linked. Even the title is hugely problematic. We know that JG wasn't the clown in inverted commas, and it just sets that whole narrative, Lisa, we talked about last time of who he was and what he did. And again, the candy man, you know, it these kind of monikers are just so problematic. They really are. And I don't know the depth and I don't know how they've put together that particular docu-series, but this kind of gratuitous entertainment aspect to these very serious cases that we're trying to shine a light on in 2021 is still hugely problematic. We're one of the very few podcasts who frames and says, wants to say from some people saying, oh, we're real crime profile are ridiculous. They don't even name the killer. 
and yeah. you know how are we meant to know who they're talking about you know I've seen quite a few comments to that and in our yeah. sort of reviews but the point is we do try and shine a light on what really went on and try and correct the narrative because I think too often we're not really hearing we're talking about torture we're talking about boys going missing we're talking about a man who talked his way out of every situation who was in episode four it seemed when Bob Ressler asked him what he was diagnosed with he sees he seemed to be pleased as punch to say 13 psychiatrists and psychologists had worked with him and that he had so many people trying to diagnose him, but he had multiple personalities and he talked about the clown and he played into everything that the professionals allowed him to. And I refuse to allow that narrative and that moniker of his, the insanity defense, it's just utter bullshit and pushing it back, as you said, Jim, onto other people. It was other people who did things. It was, he wakes up, there's a dead body, as Lisa said, and he didn't ask any questions about it. He just comes right, well, off as the victim in all of this, which is utter nonsense. But that just normalizes. It shows what he, he's so stupid. He doesn't realize that it shows that he is normalized to murder in his house. And he's not even asking any questions. He's just Minded his own business. It shows if he were actually a legitimate citizen who wasn't a serial killer, he would have flipped out over that. But no, he didn't do that because he isn't. He is a serial killer. So when you look at like the fact that he says he's asked how many people did he kill? And he says 45 sounds like a good number. But at times he denies ever killing anybody but that first guy, Tim who he says was killed in self-defense, which is just bullshit. And he says, no way someone who was sane could do what he did. But actually, it's only a sane person who could do what he did. Because an insane person would make no effort to cover his tracks. Insanity means you don't know that something is illegal or wrong. You can't tell the difference. But clearly, by hiding the bodies, by digging graves, by attempting permanent concealment. He is showing that he knows it's wrong. He knows that it's illegal. And he's trying to protect himself from getting caught. And all those things are all absolutely sane actions. And it proves that his defense of insanity is completely bogus bullshit. But why, 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 why did the police not go digging at his mother's apartment. I just do not understand that. If they know he's burying people under his house, he's throwing them in the river, he's disposing them in the woods. Of course, there any place else he's got access to. And it just seems, I mean, the documentary goes to a lot of lengths to show that people were saying there's something going on at that apartment. And still, you know, decades later, it was it's it's like pulling teeth to get them to really dig. This reminds me of the soft soil. I kept thinking about the soft soil in the teacher's pet. They're just, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think something, it's probably one of two things. They went and they dug in two spots for some reason, the wrong spot. At least one of them was the wrong spot. But I think the reaction of the community when they found the bodies the first time was horrific. And I think they're just trying to avoid bad press, you know, for the town. It's just to me, it's asinine. They should do it. They owe it to the victims. But again, like Laura said, these are less dead victims. These are less worthy victims. If they were wealthy, prominent, successful, rich people who went missing, then 
you can be damn sure that those those parking lots would be dug up or those backyard areas would be dug up. It's just ridiculous. And it, it just makes me sick that this is still going on to this day. I mean, how many times, how many cases, thousands and thousands of cases, bodies are re-exhumed to try to reinvestigate cold cases or to, to figure out who really killed someone when there's a wrongful conviction. This is simply digging up a lot that he had access to, a lot that he obviously dug trenches in, which is consistent with what he had them do under his house, which is where he buried bodies. Come on. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this is a high probability location. I don't know how you both felt about the lawyer in the docuseries, Karen Conti, who seemed to really want to represent him for the civil side, first of all, and then really wanted to represent him on the criminal side in terms of his defence. I felt very conflicted by her, actually. She seemed to find this really exciting. And there there seemed to be a lack of empathy or compassion or anything towards the victims. And she seemed to be caught up in this whole wanting to meet him. And it felt very self-serving. I don't know how you both felt about that, but she certainly seemed to buy into his narrative. And I think there was a very interesting moment where she's positing that perhaps there were other people involved because that's what he was telling her. And my question was always, well, if there were, why didn't he just name them? Exactly. Why doesn't he just name them right from the top? And then you have Bob Ressler asking him very pointedly, are you willing to cooperate? Are you willing to tell us? And he answers that question with a question, which again, Jim, what does that tell us when someone answers the question with a question? (laughs) He's lying. He could quite easily, couldn't he, have said, yes, X, Y, and Z. He could have named to Karen Conti. She's the one who's talking about he's out of state in six of the cases. It's possible that it wasn't he, him who did the killings. But yet, even though these things are being offered up, there's no names, there's no evidence, there's no dates, there's nothing tangible. It's just more spaghetti being thrown on, on a wall. But I don't know what you both felt I've sort of weighed in with my two cents, but I did have a bit of a reaction to her. I think anybody who's defending somebody like this that we know did it is is off-putting. And I mean, she's probably like a career defense attorney who is fascinated by these killers. I mean, I don't know. It was off-putting. It did. She did say a couple of times that she knew that he was a liar. But yeah, she did also yeah. buy into the narrative of more accomplices. Right, but at the same time, what I liked, and I and I think it was deliberate that they held it off to the end, was that the tapes that were handed over, you know, clearly were tapes of him with his attorney, and he's laying out everything that he actually did. He's confessing to all these murders. So we know his attorney, and most likely his female attorney, his appellate attorney, too. He probably told her all these same things. So... To have him lay all this out, but to boldfacedly lie, as we expected, because he's a pathological liar, he's a psychopath, and then to actually have the proof of that, I thought it summed it up well. So the audience of this docuseries got to see him lie over and over and over again, to be just so calm and cool and collected and indignant and self-involved in all these lies, and then to hear in his own voice saying, what he did. 
But aren't they under any obligation to, to turn that evidence in to the prosecution? Defense is never obligated to do that. Mm. That is why the prosecution always has to tell the truth. Mm. The defense doesn't. And I don't think that's right. You know, clearly the Bar Association would prevent him, his defense attorney, from putting forth the defense that said that he didn't do anything, that he had nothing to do with it. If they if he did, he should be kicked out as a lawyer because he knows he has the proof. And that's why most defense lawyers will tell their clients, I don't want to know if you did it. Don't tell me. I just want to know these facts and those facts. I'm going to ask you questions. Don't tell me anything else because they actually have an obligation to not put forth a defense that is inconsistent with the truth that they know. But I know that in the OJ case, that in many other high profile cases, the defense attorneys knew exactly what their clients did, but they did not follow the laws and not follow the rules of the bar associations. And they simply made up fantasies to try to convince the jury. Obviously, fortunately, in this case, that didn't happen. Two hours into it, into deliberations. In fact, one of the hours, I think they were eating pizza. So they ended up convicting on all the counts and he got sentenced to death. Now, I am not an advocate of the death penalty. This is a horrific human being. This is some horrible excuse for a human And he did such horrible things to other people. But I still don't think the death penalty is right. But that's a discussion for another day, only because there are many times when people on death row were actually exonerated. They were convicted falsely. And I don't think we should ever take anybody's life if there is any chance that one person in that category actually was falsely convicted. So that's how I feel about it. As horrible as this guy is, I don't think he should be killed. They went ahead and they executed him. I wanted to ask you both about this one thing that happened while he was in prison. It was so disgusting that he was just making a ton of money through a 900 number and through art that he was selling and that the state was suing him for room and board because if an offender can pay for their incarceration, they have to. I've never heard of that. Is that a thing that if you can pay for your I don't know. I it's don't know. the first time I've ever heard of it. But yeah, I'm sure there are laws on the books like that for exactly this purpose. I think David Berkowitz, he wrote a book and New York passed a law saying he can't make any money on that. And it went to the U.S. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, sorry, First Amendment. Yeah, you can't limit his right to make money. So other jurisdictions probably then said, OK, you can make money, but then we're going to take it back from you because we're taking care of you. So they yeah. charge them room and board. It's it's just a way to get back at people who try to you know make money off of their horrible crimes. Well, the irony, as I said before, that he said to Bob Ressler, the poor me of being made out to be this clown and sensationalized in the media. And yet what's he painting? Right. He's painting clown pictures to sell and cashing in on it and comparing himself to the masters. Of course, he just can't be some painter, can he? He's, he's got to be like Michelangelo or, you know, the best of the best. And it really is unpalatable, isn't it? He's making money trading off of boys that he has killed. And the same, I mean, we've had it in the UK, you know, serial killers trying to make money, writing the books, Ian Brady, even PS, he was painting as well. They all learn from each other, don't they? 
And PS got more compensation from being attacked in prison than any of the victims or families did. And he got legal aid to run all his appeals. When you look at how much money these psychopaths burn, it they're hugely costly. And it just feels absolutely horrific, I'm sure, for the families that they're making money. So I agree, it's probably a way of trying to take that money off them. And in particular, if you are in a mental health facility like PS was, he was in Broadmoor, he's seen as a patient and not a criminal. And therefore, he still gets the equivalent of social security and he still gets money coming in. And so he's making money whilst he's... Yeah, well, it is. And that's why so many of them play the mental health card, because they want to be in a facility. They're then a patient. They're not criminally responsible for their actions. And they're much more likely to come out earlier. And they can come out with money if they're painting or writing books, etc. And they might learn a few more courses or, you know, skills. And therefore, it's the big question about is that rehabilitation or is it sending all the wrong messages when someone plays the insanity defense, which is exactly what P.S. did. And he said intentionally to his wife, that's what he was going to do because he'd get a couple of years and he'd be out in a couple of years. And that's exactly what he tried to do and took in a lot of people. You know, as I mentioned to you before with J.G., the journalists who actually put the devil in disguise together, some of them have been working on the case for some time. When they saw that footage of JG for the first time, some of them said they were on the fence listening to him. Ugh. You know, it's only when you go back and you fact check and you corroborate everything. He just sounds so plausible and he just looks so normal, doesn't he? In the way that he presents and you see people being taken in because they want to believe the person before them or whatever it is that is leading them to believe their version of events, mainly probably because there isn't a victim to give another side, another version of events. And there is a gender bias. We do tend to believe men, particularly when they are confident. You can have a woman who is highly skilled but in, a, in their profession, who is quiet about their skill set. You can have a man who has no skill set, but it has confidence and bravado. And therefore, you're much more likely to gravitate. There's lots of studies that show that too. So therefore, he's playing on an awful lot in terms of knowing his mastercraft, knowing how to draw people in. And that's what we see the whole way throughout the docuseries. But I still don't like the fact he's centred. And even at the end, we're left with him. I feel we're left with him too much. And I would have liked to, and I know it's a careful balance because Craig Bowley we hear his struggle with it. He liked him, but he was conflicted. He spent a lot of time talking to him. He hugged him. They had a friendship. They're people, aren't they? They're not two-headed monsters. So it is complex and complicated, but then we've got to keep taking it back to what did he do? He lured in young boys. He targeted boys. He abused them. He tortured them. He used power and control. He enjoyed being sadistic. He enjoyed all of that. He cleaned up after the event. And that's why we have to talk about exactly what these individuals do. They're not monsters in the way that we see a monster. They can be charming and most of them are. And that's one of the key problems. That's how they get away with it. Ensuring that people this, really do understand psychopathy, yeah. isn't it? Right. We have this ridiculous idea, probably gotten from the media, that these guys are recognizable in how they look and act. And that's just not true. And, you know, unfortunately, 
he had the gift of gab. He could talk his way out of things. He had no, absolutely no morals. So he's not constrained by what normal people would be in terms of interacting with other people. He will say and do anything he wants, but he makes stupid, asinine mistakes. And the only reason why he gets away with it is because these victims were, quote, the less dead. And the one kid that actually broke that cycle, it was only because an absolutely asinine move taking this kid from the pharmacy when his mother was waiting right there. So the alarm bell was sounded immediately. In other words, these other kids, you know, he could say, oh, he told me he was going away for a week. Oh, he's always on the streets. Oh, he's never around, whatever. He's picking the the high-risk victims. For the most part, he's picking high-risk victims, but there are also low-risk victims, people who should have been basically missed right away And yet, because they're boys, because they're young men, ah, they probably just ran away. Don't worry about it. Give it 24 hours. Give it 72 hours. Give it 72 months. And they still didn't they still didn't put two and two together. Isn't that what Rob Peace brother says, that the only good thing to come out of his brother's death is it was the turnkey that, you know, unlocked all of the other crimes. And I thought that was just an incredible thing to say. And I really did appreciate all of the interviews with the victims, families and, you know, the sister, I mean, some of the parents died long before JG was executed, but it, it was so good to hear the sisters and brothers talk about their, their, their brothers and who they yeah. really were. Right. And humanizing them. It's just, it's so terrible when I, when I think about it, obviously this is the kind of thing that, we always have to sort of carry with us is the victims and their lives and what was lost and their families and the ripple effects of what these kinds of offenders do. But it is something that motivates us to try to educate people so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. I mean, if you do, as Laura said, if you see somebody digging holes constantly, like find out why, put up a camera, whatever you have to do, Figure out what's going on because these guys can't get away with it if people are diligent, if people are vigilant, if people actually care about other people and a little bit less about social customs and things like that. And beware of the guy who smiles in your face but gives you a little bit of a creepy feeling. Beware of that guy and the guy who's always kind of trying to talk you into things or or get you to do what he wants. It's just not how things should go. We shouldn't have to wait for 33 people to go missing before a serious in-depth investigation occurs. 33. Possibly even more, isn't it? When we think yeah, about exactly. the reality, it probably is much more. Yeah. And the confidence that he had to take a high, well, a, a victim who's relatively low risk, but we don't know whether Rob Peast had said to him, oh, my mum's waiting, but he still went ahead. And I would imagine that he probably did say that because it was his mum's birthday. We don't know that. I'm just speculating. But the fact that his confidence levels are so high, that tells us something too. And yes, I agree. Hearing from the victims, some who survived, some from the families in in terms of how they were treated by law enforcement and this constant being fobbed off, still a major problem even now. And I would say most people in law enforcement join for the right reasons, but we do really have to use experts, don't we, to help educate 
And I think the the docu-series for me didn't really provide that expert narrative that I would have liked to have heard someone, whether it was from Bob Ressler or someone else, just chiming in of threading some of it together of, of what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And you know, a couple of last points just to make about JG's background is that in childhood, yes, he was a victim of domestic abuse. And his father sounded brutal and controlling and not just about alcohol. He sounds like he was very coercively controlling and he took most of it out on young JG. And that would have had a profound impact. We also know, and I know this through a lot of my analysis and research on serial killers, most of them do have that background. They have been victimized. And therefore, we have to, I'm not talking about it's cause and effect. I'm talking more about understanding the links that when there is domestic violence and a, an abuser and a coercive controller in a household, it impacts seriously on the children and their development. And that's why we must take domestic violence and child abuse seriously. And he was sexually abused as well. So we know lots of people suffer domestic violence. We know lots of people are sexually abused. They don't go on to harm other people. Mm. But there were a number of things in his background, along with the fact his mother talks about him hitting his head, being concussed on a swing, traumatic brain injury. And when we start to join all these things together, I'm sure that he was showing red flag behaviour for some time, carefully concealed, I would imagine, because his sister said it sort of came out of the blue. But... His ex-wife, well, both the ex-wives talk very clearly about his control levels and we have to do better to understand the risks to children and women with that caveat that it doesn't turn everybody into killers. But what I do see with all serial killers is they do have to, they do tend to have coercive control being victimised as children and then their behaviour becomes about power and control, taking the power and control back. Right. Right. And it's important to note that it doesn't cause someone to be a serial killer or a sex offender or a rapist. What it does is it may, in their minds, give them justification and rationalization for it. It also inures them to violence. But they have to have that propensity to begin with. It doesn't create a serial killer. They made decisions in their own lives, in their own minds, about what they were going to do as a result of their life and their life experiences and what their wants and desires were. You can't create a killer by being mean to them. That killer was there. You just unleashed him. And that is something that is a personal and absolute decision that JG made and every other serial killer made who isn't insane. The sanity is that they make the decision to do it and they make the decision to hide it and they make the decision to do it again and again and again. Those are things that they do. Taking something in their past to try to justify it doesn't undo the decision they make to commit crimes, to take advantage of other people, to hurt people and to take other lives, causing incredibly horrible ripple effects in their families and communities. You hear that? Your dog knows. Spring is coming sooner than you think. 
But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas are an itchy nuisance and can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. PetMed's pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best flea and tick products for your pet. PetMed's offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including Nexgard, Simperica, and more. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com promo code PODCAST for 40% off your first auto ship order. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. I think there was a really powerful parable that the prosecutor used in his summation or his closing arguments about people calling J.G. Jekyll and Hyde and reminding them that Dr. Jekyll wanted to become Mr. Hyde. And also maybe he was Mr. Hyde all along, right? And the Dr. Jekyll was really the fantasy. Anyway, I just thought that was a really powerful thing for him to put in front of the jury. Yeah, I thought that was well described as well, Lisa. The fact that it was a choice. He did it over and over and over and over again. That shows intention. And as Jim said, if it was someone who was not intentioned, they would have just left everything as as it was. They wouldn't have worried about clearing up. They wouldn't have made those decisions. And I think his last words when he was killed and executed was kiss my ass. Really? Which, again, just shows... The true him. I believe that that's the true him. And what we saw all the time was his image management when he was being interviewed by Bob and how he behaved. That's not him. That's him trying to preserve, trying to manipulate the real him underneath all of that. And it's not consistent all the time. But anyone who shows that callous disregard, that lack of empathy, blaming victims of having no responsibility taking... You know, it's that lack of empathy and compassion that we see over and over and over again with him. And that's instructive to me. What he said, last of all, is really his last statement and testimony when his sister was asking him, please say what you've done, help the families, allow them to grieve, confess, and then your spirit will be taken to God. She was asking for him to do all the right things. And in the face of that, that was his final statement. Right. Yeah. And I th- it reminds me of what Bill Hagmeyer, my former unit chief in the BAU, told us about him spending the last two weeks of, his, of the life of Bundy 
with him before Bundy was executed. And Bundy had spent time with religious leaders and all this, and he just blamed pornography made me do it uh, because that's what they wanted to hear him say. But after they left, he laughed at them. He laughed. So what do you think about this post-execution conspiracy that JG was part of a sexual sex trafficking network, porn network, that he was involved in all of that? I think it seems plausible, but I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Well, no, I think most serial killers act alone and they are very self-centered. He, I think it's clear that he used two of his employees who was, he was using them for sex and he was using them to dig trenches in the, in the crawl space. But I think the only conspiracy was the conspiracy of ignorance around boys and, and young men running away. Conspiracy of ignorance on the part of the investigators that they just believed everything that he said. And he was able to talk his way out of the six times that he was a suspect in these cases. But I do not believe that he was part of any larger group. I think that is just a bunch of bullshit that he was trying to scrape up and scrape together, show connections that this guy was in town or this guy was doing this. Yeah, I'm sure those guys were doing that. But that had nothing to do with what he was doing, which was for his own sexual pleasure and his own sadistic pleasure. JG was grooming and trapping and torturing and raping and killing young boys. I mean, young men and boys. And that is what he was doing. And the reason he was doing it is because it satisfied his inner needs and he didn't give a fuck about another human being, period. Well, I think it's an interesting set of questions that are now being posited. And I think that docuseries that I mentioned goes into that. Now, I have worked some cases where the serial killer has been involved in a paedophile network and it's been buried multiple times. And I do believe that birds of a feather flock together. They network in prisons, you know, they do connect with each other. And so we know that John Norman, who ran a paedophile ring, the Delta Project, we know that he knew JG. We know that... Phil Pask also worked for JG at some point. So we know he is networked in and therefore you have to ask questions about that. Yeah. But I do think that Cram and Rossi were pawns, were manipulated like everybody else. They did they dug the trenches, they did the things that he asked them to. And I don't believe they were involved in the sadistic, torturous killings of the young boys and men. I believe that that power and control level, that sadistic level shown by JG, that was all him, that he liked to play God and he wouldn't want other people interfering in that. So I think it needs to be explored further. It's very difficult to say either way. And I do think it's hugely problematic with the police investigations. And I think a lot of people don't want this dug up When we think about even the sentencing, that he served 18 months for a 10-year sentence, head should bloody roll for that, quite frankly. If he continued to be locked up, most of these boys wouldn't have been killed, certainly not in that time frame. And I think it's not in people's interest to ask difficult questions. And of course, with John Norman, Phil 
Pesk also being dead now. And I can't remember whether it's Cram or Rossi, but one of them died by suicide. Died by suicide. I think you have to ask questions about that too. I think there's a lot of people who probably don't want all of this explored and dug up. And equally, maybe there's not records. But I think we have to look at just because on that premise of birds of a feather do flock together of yeah. what else was going on. But I don't think they were all killing together. I think you have to separate the two exactly. things out. Exactly. And I, I know because I, I worked with Joe Sullivan when I was over there at New Scotland Yard when I first met you about a case that was a pedophile ring. Not, I would say, a child sex offender ring because they weren't going after. They may have had some prepubescent victims, but they weren't solely pedophiles. But they, they did group together and apparently at least one of them admitted to killing some kids. I don't believe they were prepubescent kids. So I'm not sure if these guys were pedophiles or, or just preferential child sex offenders. But because pedophiles, just for our listeners, is a small subset of preferential child sex offenders. It's for people who were solely attracted to prepubescent children, not 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 year olds. Those we categorize, they're called either hebophiles or phoebophiles. And that's for people who are sexually attracted to teenage males or females. But we categorize them as preferential child sex offenders. So I do know that that exists, but nothing about tells me that he is somebody that would rely or had to rely on other people to get access to children for sex. He created his business for that purpose. He created this this entire cast of characters that he could then pick and choose from. He offered jobs to the victims he wanted to target. And then he went through that process with them and he got them to a position. And in fact, the very last victim, because he was caught after that, it was as a result of him offering this teenage boy a job. I think that's how he operated. He he got away with it so long on his own. I don't believe he had to enlist these other people. Now, did he also talk to these other people about what, what he did or did he share things or did he make videos? That's possible. But I do not believe for a second that somebody else came into his house from one of these other organizations, one of these preferential child sexual victimization rings, came into his house and killed somebody and buried him under the crawl space. So, yes, I think they should look into these connections. Yes, if there's more information out there, I'd be happy to see it. But I don't have any information that indicates that Casey relied on anybody else to get access to victims. And also when he was asked, I think the most revealing thing was, although he liked to muddy the waters that other people helped him, when Bob Bressler asked him, would he cooperate? He answered the question with a question and said, well, why wasn't I asked that at the start? If other people helped him, that was his time, right? The same when he was at trial, that was his time. And therefore, I believe that it's just lies and manipulation. He likes to muddy the waters. It's throwing the spaghetti on the wall and having everybody, you know, all the hairs then go running. And I'm mixing metaphors and analogies, but I think that's what he liked to do too. And I'm saying that intentionally because if you create enough confusion and distraction and deflection and you obfuscate and you keep saying something, sometimes in different ways, 
then people might leave you and buy into your narrative or just become very confused. So that for me is the other tell point that he had plenty of opportunities, particularly when Bob Ressler put it to him. So you can never rule anything out. And I think that's right. the thing, Lisa, there's always the 1% mm. that you've never seen before. And I do agree that we know he was into pornography and I want to separate out if there are any children involved in that, then it's child sexual abuse. It's not pornography. So, and I don't know the detail of what pornography he made, but we know that that happened too. So I would imagine that he did lots of different things. He's never probably been properly looked at and investigated. Right. Uh, There is a segment of this documentary series that I just found my notes on, and it was about his sister, JG's sister found three-way porn and gave them to, she said, either the prosecutor or the defense attorney. Well, clearly, if she had given them to the prosecutor, they would have been part of the trial, but uh, at least part of the evidence. And and I don't think that happened. So he probably gave, she probably gave them to JG's attorney and he just buried them. But he said when Cram didn't want to do nothing, i.e. when he didn't want to have sex with JG, that this guy Paskey can get you someone for sex. Did he use Paskey and perhaps one of these uh, sex trafficker guys to get access to people for sex? Absolutely. I think that's believable. But I don't believe he then killed those people because there was a known trail from that person to JG to death. And that would have been a, a bigger problem for him. I think he was smart enough not to do that. And if somebody's going to give him sex, even rough sex, for money or freely, then he doesn't have to kill them. But he was probably killing people at the same time because, as you said earlier, Laura, he got off on the torture and the fear and the panic and the pain and the sex, all of that, because he, JG, is a documented sexual sadist, and he should have been kept in prison for 10 years, and then he should have been monitored for the rest of his life. The justice system failed. They failed miserably. And as a result of that, at least 33 young men and boys are dead, having suffered horribly in that death. Can I just mention something since you're on that and Laura mentioned it before? I just want to mention one victim who survived. He was the one who JG sexually assaulted when he was a boy and who was why he was convicted for that first time. This kid, Don Voorhees, suffered tremendously his entire life after that abuse. And it was so heartbreaking in the doc when they talk about how Don Voorhees goes on the stand to tell his story and testify against JG. And he is just, he can't even function. I don't even know why they even put him on the stand. Well, they were hoping. Sh- right. But he showed up. That he could he, do it. Right. And he, you he know, may he have showed- wanted that opportunity. Yeah, but he was clearly crying the night before, drunk, all that stuff. And then many years later, he ended his life. And so he never recovered from the sky. It's just horrible. It is horrible. It is. Well, you wouldn't having done all of that to him. And then he's out in 18 months. Yeah. I mean, that is just insult to injury, isn't it? And Yeah, the prosecutors must have made that decision that they wanted to really characterize who he was. And I would imagine that was very, very difficult for him to do that. That for me is the biggest travesty 
that case. And as I mentioned before, he said that was the only thing he was ever sentenced to. So we know that there were other victims. And when we come across these individuals in law enforcement, we have a duty to properly investigate them. And that just didn't happen. And so we keep going back to, unfortunately, that was the biggest failure right there. And people don't want it. it, That part seems to be glossed over by everybody that that was the huge failure, first of all, that he shouldn't have been out. If he was categorised as a, as a psychopath and a sexual sadist and someone said that he wasn't treatable, where was that document when they were discussing allowing him to be released after just 18 months? He sodomized a young boy. That is just unacceptable. That's just green lighting him. And therefore, it's no wonder he was just so reckless in everything that he did. He felt that he was God. He could do whatever he wanted. No one cared enough to ask questions. Even his family protected him. And that, again, is really worrying. So, yes, people digging holes or trusting your instinct about somebody saying something or doing something is really important that you do call it in. And this was a case that could have been prevented. And even now, people have bought into his narrative. And I just... I'm glad that Peacock did this docu-series because I think it was a, it's an important case to have back in the public spotlight and for it still to be open. We've still got victims that haven't been identified. We've still got lots of missing persons. So it's quite right that it's an open case rather than what I thought it was, which was closed. Mm-hmm. And I think probably lots of people will be surprised at that. And as I mentioned before, the clown caricature It is mischaracterized in this case, although I do suspect he was using that too, as we talked about in one of our episodes. It just shows how prolific perpetrators can be when they're left unchecked. And here's a case that shows that fully well, unfortunately. Yeah. So please, everybody out there, let this case be a lesson so that we don't have things like this happen in the future, whether the victims are men or boys, or women, or girls, rich or poor, white or brown or black or anything, we should all be looking out for our neighbors, our friends, our families, our communities, other human beings, because there are people who prey upon them and they use us and they use their public image to get access, authority, and control over their targeted victims. And then, as in this case, they talk their way out of it. We can't just listen to the bullshit. We have to actually dig deeper and find out what is going on. When there is a pattern of behavior, when people are going missing, and there's one person that's the nexus, that person should be incredibly carefully scrutinized within the law, of course. But there's so much that can be done in terms of surveillance and in-depth interviews and not just taking things at face value. We want to thank you for listening to this series and hopefully the new series that's coming out soon. Would you say it again, Laura? It's called The Clown and the Candy Man. Hopefully this new series will have information that we can crunch and analyze and figure out. And hopefully that case too will be a very instructive lesson to learn. But till next time, thank you for listening to Real Crime Profile, signing out.
If you like deeper analysis like this episode on topics like making a murderer, mind hunter, escape at Danamora, the case of Sally Challen, the teacher's pet, Lynette Dawson, the exonerated five in When They See Us, and the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, you can listen to RCP on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you listen to us on. And please be sure, if you like what we do, to give us a five-star review. Thank you for listening to Real Crime Profile. Real Crime Profile is produced and edited by Paul Francis Sullivan. Sound engineering by Mike Thal. Music is composed by Simba Tsumba. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Real Crime Profile is produced by XG Productions and distributed by Wondery. For advice and support if you're experiencing stalking in the UK, you can contact Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service on 0203 866 4107 or you can go to the website where there's a lot of information and advice that you can follow on www.paladinservice.co.uk. If you're experiencing domestic abuse, you can call the National Domestic Violence Helpline for free on 0800-2000-247. In the US, if you're experiencing domestic abuse and need advice, shelter or counselling, you can call Genesis, the 24-hour hotline, on 214 946 you can also go to their website for further advice or support www.genesisshelter.org and there's the domestic violence hotline on Prime members, you can listen to Real Crime Profile ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.